Welcome back to the Word Encounter, episode 253. We're going to pick it up in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, and um, got a lot of meat to get into. And like I said, Hebrews can be kind of heady and, and, and deeply theological and whatnot, but it's important for us to understand this, even though it's written basically to the Jewish Christians who are uh, thinking about defecting from the uh, faith and going back uh, to Judaism. Uh, It's important for us because the arguments that are being used to keep them in the faith are the same arguments that we need to use with ourselves when we can uh, get confused or sometimes um, distracted or off course. And so with that, let's get started. It says, Christ, a high priest. So again, we see here that the author, who we're not sure who it is, but the author is presenting the case of Christ's um, superiority, Christ's sufficiency. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so he's saying that for every high priest that comes from man, you know, his appointment, his assignment, okay, pertains to God for the people. He's an emissary for the people, you know, to God to offer both gift, uh, gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. It says in verse 2, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he also is clothed uh, with weakness. <clears throat> and so he is able to gently deal with those who are going astray and who are ignorant because he himself is weak. And so therefore he's able to relate. It says in verse 3, Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So Christ didn't appoint himself. He didn't elevate himself. He was assigned by God. He was appointed by God. In verse 6 it says, this, also, this is also said in another place in Scripture, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now who is this Melchizedek uh, character? Uh, remember Abraham uh, paid a tenth to him when Abraham came back from defeating the kings in the Old Testament. Um, he, he came across Melchizedek and he paid a tenth to him. Why did he pay a tenth? Did he recognize who Melchizedek was? I don't know. Let's keep going on and find out what what it says. It says in verse 7, it says, "During uh, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard, uh, and he was heard because of his reverence. This is referring to Jesus. See, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Talking about Jesus again. And he was heard because, uh, because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That is, to me, that simple uh, verse there is, is amazing. Jesus was a son, but he learned obedience from what he suffered. So for him to suffer, the father had to allow him to suffer. See, sometimes we step in because we don't want our kids to suffer. But when we remove them from suffering, we remove them from the lessons that they may need to learn from that suffering. It says in verse 9, 
after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So after he was perfected through his suffering, so the suffering was necessary for him to become perfected. Then it says he became the source because of the perfection, because of the suffering, which resulted in perfection. He became the source, the source of eternal salvation for all of us, for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, there's this Melchizedek person. The problem of immaturity in verse 11. <clears throat> We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. So the author is telling the people, remember, he's talking to the Jewish Christians. You know, we have a great deal to say about these things, these matters of Christ, you know, but it's difficult to explain why, because you have become too lazy to understand. A lot of times people want to be spoon fed things of God. They want to be spoon fed by their pastor. They want to be spoon fed by their priest. They want to be spoon fed by their bishop. They want to be spoon fed by whoever. See, because they've become too lazy to investigate things on their own. In verse 12, he says, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. <laughs> he said, you should, be you should be teaching, but you're still students. And not only are you still students, you're still in kindergarten because you still need to be retaught the basic things. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. And so the mature are those who can sense good and evil and, dist and distinguish between the two. They can discern between the two what is good and evil. The word is saying that those are the mature, implying that the infants can't do that. Let's go on to chapter 6. It says, warning against falling away. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from works, from dead works, faith in God. So he's going over uh, what all of these that are considered to be elementary teaching. Foundation for repentance from dead works, faith in God teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance. Now this is important. So he calls these things, <clears throat> the, the list I just gave, uh, repentance from dead works, and faith in God, uh, ritual washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. He calls those things elementary, basic. He says that we will do these things if God permits us. Now, why might not God permit them to reteach this stuff, essentially? He says, we will reteach you if God allows us. So why wouldn't God allow them? Let's go on. It says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Huh? It says, for it is impossible to renew to repentance. 
It is possible to bring back to life those who have turned away, those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. The word of sin is it possible for those who have done these things and have fallen away. It's, it's impossible for people who have tasted of the goodness of God, but yet and still decided to turn away. The word is saying is it is impossible to renew those people to repentance. Is it impossible when all things are possible with God? I don't know if the author is involved in a little hyperbole here or if he's saying that it's very difficult to bring those back who have once tasted God and decided to turn away is difficult to bring those back who have decided to fall away. I don't know. Then it says, this is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the son of God and holding him up to contempt. So for those who have tasted of the goodness of God, who have accepted Jesus Christ and then decided to turn away, I'm not talking about backsliders per se. I'm talking people that have made a, a conscious decision to turn from Christ, to turn from Christianity. No, I no longer believe that. That is, that's crap. No. Those who have made that decision. The word says that you are re-crucifying uh, Jesus and you're holding him up to contempt. You are mocking him. You are saying that he's a liar. He says, when you do that, that is what you're doing. You're re-crucifying Christ. You're calling him a liar. That's pretty strong. Then it says in verse 7, I love this, for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces veg vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Wow. For the ground that drinks the rain that falls on it, for the man that hears the gospel and accepts it, for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, for the man who hears the word of God and responds to it, and because he responds to it, others are blessed and other, others come into the kingdom because he responded to it, because he was fruitful. It says he receives a blessing from God. Wow. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. But if the man who hears the word of God and treats it with contempt and turns other people off from the things of God, tries to damage the kingdom of God, denies Jesus and influences others, the word says that he will be cursed and that the end will be burned. So we have, we have a very clear distinct, uh, distinction here. In one case, the man who is fruitful will be blessed. In the other case, the man who leads others astray, he will be burned. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. 
I don't think I need to add anything to that. That's pretty clear. <clears throat> Inheriting the promise. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. So, for when God made a promise to Abraham, okay, there was nobody greater than God to swear by. And so, like, a lot of times people will say, you know, I swear before God that I will blah, 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 blah. You know, I swear before God that I will take care of my children. I swear before God that I'll never cheat on you. I swear before. And so people swear by things or by entities that are greater than themselves. But there's nobody greater than God. See, so for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. In other words, he says, I swear by the fact that I am God, that this is what will happen. He says in verse 14, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. So he swore by himself that he would greatly bless Abraham and that he would multiply him tremendously. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the blessing for people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. So if you owe somebody, if, you know, if you owe somebody some money and you're in an argument, in, in a dispute, and you say, look, I swear before God that I'll pay you before next Friday. That ends the dispute. So you're swearing by something greater than yourself that this is what will happen. That's what people do. We swear by things greater than ourselves. Then it says because of that. In verse 17, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. See, God made a promise and he guaranteed it with an oath. In verse 18, so that through two unchangeable things, through the promise and through the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge you know, fled for refuge in Christ, might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. See, Jesus has encountered, or excuse me, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's this Melchizedek dude again. We'll get to that in the next chapter. It says, we have this, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, uh, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now remember, when Jesus died, the curtain to the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom and opened up. Um, in the Holy of Holies is where the high priest went once a year to make atonement for the people and only once a year and only the high priest. But when Jesus was crucified and died, the curtain rent from top to bottom, opening up, signifying that no longer did man need a, a, an advocate, if you will, to go into uh, uh, the presence of God as a substitute for man. Man didn't have to go through somebody else like the high priest, that man could approach the holy God directly through Jesus. And so it says here that our hope goes into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain with Jesus. It says he has entered there on our behalf because he became the high priest forever. In chapter 7, 
It says the greatness of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, for this dude Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem is the forerunner to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, or excuse me, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. Abraham went out to fight the kings. I think this was when he was trying to ret- uh, retrieve Lot, I believe. I need to look that up. But anyway, Abraham came back from defeating the kings, <clears throat> and, uh, and he was met by Melchizedek, and Abraham blessed him. See? He blessed him with a tenth of everything. Blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name, uh, first his name means king of righteousness, his name being Melchizedek. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. In other words, as far as Melchizedek is concerned, there is no record of his father or, or his mother. There is no record of his uh, priestly reign in it. There is nothing. And so a lot of people believe, myself included, that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. See, he's a... And so Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. He's in the likeness of Melchizedek. And so it says here that his name means king of righteousness, see? And it also means... Um, uh, king of peace, king of sailing, p- king, uh, king of peace. And it says without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son, uh, but resembling the son of God, but resembling Jesus, he remains a priest forever. Verse nine. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch gave him a 10th of the plunder to him. So Abraham, you know, went to war, brought the uh, plunder back and gave him a tenth of everything. Why would Abraham do that? The son of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. So God set up the system that the, the, the tribe of Levites would be the priestly tribe. And uh, they wouldn't have a territory like the other um uh, like the other tribes had, that the other 11 tribes had, they wouldn't have a territory. Instead, they would minister to the people and they would live off the 10th that the people, you know, uh, tithed essentially to them. That's how they would uh, uh, earn their living, through ministering to the people and receiving a 10th from the people. The sons of Levi who receive a priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, so they have also descended from Abraham. So everybody is a descendant of Abraham. The tribe of Levi was set aside to minister to the people, and they were to earn their living by receiving a tenth uh, of the resources from all the people, from the harvest, from you know whatever they did. In verse 6, But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham. In other words, this is saying, but Melchizedek, who wasn't from this line, because they weren't even born yet, (laughs) collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So Abraham, Abraham had the promises. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth and Melchizedek blessed 
um, uh, Abraham. It says in verse, 11, uh, verse 7, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this is a general statement. And so in order to bless somebody, uh, one has to be superior to the one being blessed. God blesses us. We are inferior to God. <clears throat> he blesses us. It says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, I'm going to jump uh, versions here, and I'm going to go to the pra- Passion Translation because it just it, this can be confusing from verses 8 to 10 in chapter 7, uh, but the Passion Translate, uh, Translation makes things more clear. So let's go over that. And it says, although the Jewish priests received tithes, they all died. They were mortal, they were mortal, but Melchizedek lives on. It could even be said that Levi, the ancestor of every Jewish priest who received tithes, actually paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. For although Levi was yet to be born, the seed from which Levi came was presented, was present, excuse me, in Abraham when he paid his tithe to Melchizedek. And so what's being set up here is the greatness of Melchizedek, that this isn't, wasn't just some, some dude, that this was a great person. And so the author is laying, again, this foundation for his audience. A superior priesthood in verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, uh, the people received the law. So if perfection came through the Levites via the law, see, the Levites were responsible for ministering to and teaching the people the law. So if perfection, if justification could come through that process, what further need was there for another pre, uh, priest to appear? Then why would somebody else need to come? If that was sufficient, if that worked, if that could work, then why would there need to be another priest? See? What further need uh, was there for another priest to appear said to be according to the order of Melchizedek? So why would we need another priest that's in the order of Melchizedek if, in fact, we could be justified through the law? So let me just read the whole thing so it flows. It says, what further need um, was there for another priest to appear said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? In other words, not according to the law. Why was it said? Why would we need another priest that's not from Levi who's going to present a different message, a different gospel, if in fact the law was sufficient to save and justify people? Verse 12, for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. And so it's saying no one of this new order is from the order is from the line of the Levites. They've never served at the altar. That's what that means. They're not Levites. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. The only thing Moses said with regard to priests was from the line of Levi, nobody from Judah, but that's where our Lord is from Judah. It says in verse 15, and this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on the legal regulation about physical descent, 
but based on the power of an indestructible life. See, and so this new, this new way is not based on genealogy. It's not based on lineage and legal regulation. See, it's based on the power of an indestructible life. You can't kill Jesus. That's what it's based on. Verse 17, for it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the analogy is being made between Melchizedek and Jesus. In verse 18, so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the previous command, the law, so the previous law is annulled, is canceled, because it was weak and unprofitable. Its only purpose was to show people that they were sinners, incapable of saving themselves. That was the purpose of the law. In verse 19, it says, For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. But a better hope, is the law perfected nothing, but here comes Jesus, a better way, a better hope, through which we draw near to God. It says, None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And so the the Levitical priest didn't have an oath. See, nothing was guaranteed through them. They all died. So they couldn't be priests forever. But the one comes along. And the Lord has sworn that he will not change his mind, that this dude, this guy, Jesus, he will be the priest forever. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, many, many Levites have become Levitical priests since they are prevented uh, by death from remaining in office. In other words, they, they can't, no one Levitical priest can stay in office forever because he died. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. But because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. It says in verse 25, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Let me read that again. Therefore, Jesus is able to save us completely. Because he always lives to intercede for us. He doesn't die. So he's always there advocating for us. Verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priest do. First for their own sins, because Jesus is sinless, so he doesn't need to do this. Then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. He made one sacrifice himself, and he did it for all time. None of this daily stuff, none of this annual stuff, making atonement. No, once and once for all. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. And so the author of Hebrews is a tremendous lawyer, in my opinion. He is laying down the case with regard to 
Why are you thinking about leaving a better covenant for a worse covenant? A covenant that has no power to actually save you. And so he's putting forth the evidence with regard to why they should not consider this. And with that, we are done for today. We'll pick it up in Hebrews chapter 8 tomorrow. Remember and never forget the proposition that comes from Jesus. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you shall not be put to shame and that you shall be saved. One day, that proposition is going to be taken away from man. But that proposition is an invitation is still in existence today. Do yourself a favor and consider it strongly. Stay safe, be blessed, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and should he bless us with another day of life, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.